Today, Pastor Javen continues the series, First Comes Love, where we are looking at what singleness, dating, and marriage looks like for those who follow Christ. Today, we are going to look at the covenant of marriage. Take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's service. At Bethel, we are continuing our series today. We've got two more weeks uh, uh, in our series of First Comes Love, where we've been talking about singleness, dating, and uh, marriage in regards to a follower of Christ and what that looks like uh, for us and what it means in, in the standards that we're trying to live up to in that regards. Week one, we talked about uh, how whatever season we're in, whether we're singled or married, it is a good season. It is a gift that has been given to us by God. And uh, we focus primarily on the aspect of being single in week one. Um, But we also said that whatever season we're in, we need God. We need God's strength. We need him to be with us as we journey in that season. And that's why we're calling the series First Comes Love, where we're saying that that is true. First comes love. But the love that must come first is our first love for God. And as we keep his, our love towards him first in our life, then, uh, then he helps us in these relationships. Week two, we talked about dating, how there needs to be a high standards in our dating life and in, in regards to our dating. We need to have a high standard for why we date, who we date. We need to have a high standard for love. And what that means, Jesus told us to love others the way that he loved us. And that's a very high standard. And we want to continue that standard even into our marriage. And we want to continue to date even in to our marriage. And then last week we talked about intimacy. And we talked about the fact that intimacy, yes, it is enjoyable. But it has such powerful effects that it comes with a warning label. And we talked about that last week and what that looks like. And, uh, and so if you missed any of those, I encourage you to go back online and, and look at that. Uh, look at any of those that you may have missed. But today, understanding all of these topics, understanding singleness and, and dating and the power of intimacy in our life, uh, understanding those things, it takes us to where we are today. And that is the topic of Mowage. Mowage is what brings us to gotta today. Love. I'm not making fun of a speech impediment. I hope you know that. That is a throwback to the Princess Bride. If you ever saw that movie, it was a very, very funny scene. But anyway, uh, we're talking about talking about marriage uh, today. I am blessed to be married to a wonderful woman who is serving over in our Polywogs class today with two of my kids and. Um, and uh, just uh, been a blessed marriage that I have. And, and, uh, my wife's an English teacher. Well, she is an English major. She teaches journalism. So oftentimes she, she will notice things, um, uh, grammatical errors that I may put out and things like that. And she lets me know, in love, I'm grateful for them. I, I, I'm grateful. Used to when I was younger and I would ask her when I was in my, getting my master's, I would ask her to proofread my papers. And then I would not like her after she proofread my papers. But... Um, <laughs> Because there was a lot of red on those things. But anyway, she asked me this week, she said, Javen, is singleness a word? I said, well, singleness is a word. I mean, it's in literary books and computers recognize it. If, it's a, if a computer recognizes it, it must be a word. She said, no, no, no. I know singleness is a word, but is singlesness a word? I said, well, not to my knowledge. Why do you ask that? Well, the graphic has said singlesness uh, for the last three weeks. And now, now you just now tell me (laughs) three weeks into the series, you just now tell me that I have a misspelling on the graphics. Anyway, no, I absolutely love my wife. I love our marriage. It has been a, you know, May will be married about nine, not about, we will be married 19 years in May. And it's just been a fun, fun journey. But I remembered when we, I remember when we got married, as we were going into our marriage, people, they would try to encourage you going into your marriage and they would offer statements. Maybe you've got these statements when you were about to get married, or maybe you made these statements, 
And they would come to you and they would tell you, David, I'm going to tell you, marriage is very tough. It's very hard. The first year of your marriage, it's brutal. I mean, it's, it's, it's brutal. And it, if you make it three years, I mean, that's And if you get to the seventh year, I mean, they don't call it the seventh year itch for nothing, right? I mean, seriously, people told me these things. And, and I, so while I understand the sentiment, you know, I get the, the sentiment that marriage is difficult, you know, and, and you've got to work in it. Um, but I think there's a better way that we can go about doing it. So kind of the thought that, that I have is what seeds, you know, I've said this in regards to how we, you know, as a church, how we talk to those who are single, how we handle each other and encourage each other in these stages in our life. Well, even in regards to marriage, what seeds are we planting into other people's marriages in the words and the things that we say to them? I believe it is possible to be a positive realist. <laughs> you know, we don't have to, we, we can be a realist, but we don't have to be so negative in how we approach it. See, the thing is, and what they're trying to say, what the sentiment that they're saying, I think that they're trying to make is that marriage is a beautiful gift. It is a beautiful gift, something that we have, we have had. And, and if you have, if you've been able to go from being, taking the gift of singleness, we talked about this week, wanting the gift of singleness, exchanging it for the gift of marriage, and you're not exchanging it for a far superior gift. You're just cha- exchanging two gifts. God's given you a different gift for a different season in your life. And if, if you're blessed to walk into that new gift, then that is a gift worth fighting for. It's a gift worth doing everything you can to protect and keep. And we have to remember that our fight in this is not against each other. You know, one of the, one of the encouragements we got last week from a clip or last night from a clip we watched was uh, the, uh, the guy made this statement. He said, understand that the enemy is your enemy is the devil. Your source is Jesus. And we can never mistake putting our spouse in either of those two spots because our spouse is not the enemy and our spouse is not the source, right? So we have to understand which one we are. So, but our, but our marriage is worth fighting for. Now, listen, I understand that within this room, that there are different aspects of relationships that have taken place. And I get that. And just like with everything that I've said throughout these last several weeks, please understand and know that nothing is being spoken to from a place of judgment on what has happened in your life or where you've been in your life. There's none of that, right? There, there, there is none of that. So I realize that there have been stages and been situations that have happened in marriages. But today I hope that you find God's encouragement in your marriage, not judgment. So again, I want to ask the question, what seeds are we planting in other people's marriages and what seeds are we planting in our own marriage? Maybe you, you remember the story of when Jesus was teaching about faith. He said that if you have faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you can speak to this mountain and it will be moved. You know, why would Jesus use this example of a mustard seed? A mustard seed is one of the tiniest seeds that you get. And, and I think maybe what Jesus is trying to say is that, that God, faith can transform the smallest thing into something great. The faith that we have in God, like we just sung in that last song, to trust God can transform something small into something great. But just like with a seed, sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it takes time. It's something that that we have to, it's going to start small. 
but eventually it will sprout. And so that's why this, you plant this seed and then you nurture it and you water it. You're committed to this seed and you do everything you can to protect that seed and to see it grow and to see it sprout and eventually become something great. But it's got to stay planted for that to happen. So let's jump into Paul's encouragement towards marriages to Ephesians chapter five uh, and where Paul gives us some instruction today. And we're going to start at verse 15. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Paul says this, he says, So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because the... That will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband... Is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother is joined to his wife. The two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. So I want us to notice something. I started in verse 15 for a purpose. I didn't just go straight to verse 22 and say, wives submit to your husband. Start in verse 15 for a purpose, because there is a bridge that connects Paul's discussion about being filled with the spirit to submitting to one another. And I think it's very important that we recognize that. Why? Because we need the spirit when it comes to submitting to one another. First comes love. But the love that comes first must be our first love for God. And as we love God, he enables us and imparts his spirit into our life. And his spirit then enables us and helps us to submit to one another, to consider the other over ourselves. In another letter that Paul wrote in Philippians, he wrote to the church of Philippi, Philippians chapter two, he said to be like Christ who was equal with God, did not consider his equality something to be grasped, but instead lowered himself. He considered others over himself. And that's what we're called to do, right? So then Paul goes into what it looks like to submit. So let's just jump straight into this. And let's just look at the fact of of what Paul is talking about submitting to each other and what this looks like and what the roles are. See, we see this terminology, 
Wives, submit to your husband. He is the head of the marriage. And, and guys, we get this thought, you know, we get this. That's right. That's right. I am the head woman. Submit to me. I'm over this whole thing. But listen, Paul's saying that that takes this out of context. And I want to show that this morning. The, our responsibilities and the things that you do in your marriage and, and within your home, you know, they have to be the responsibilities and the things that work well for your marriage. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. My mom, my mom took care of everything in the house. She cooked, she cleaned, she took care of everything. But understand this, she did not do that because that was her place. She did that because she loved to do it and that was her full-time job. That's what she did. My dad never treated my mom as if he was if she, as if she was his servant to answer every beckoning need and call that he had and needed in his life. Right? So when I got married, I knew I could not treat my marriage in that same way because Jenny has a full-time job. She works very hard at her job. She spends many hours with her job. And so for me to come home and expect that even though she works a full-time job, that if I come home, I expect you to make sure I got food, make sure you got me taken care. If this works in your home, that's great. But for me, I knew it wasn't going to work in my home. So if I came to that way, then I'm coming at it from a place that is selfish, wanting to see that happen. I'm looking to be served, but that's not what Christ taught us. See, I think we need to understand what Jesus taught in the definition of leadership and being ahead over anything. If you go back to Jesus's words to the disciples in Mark chapter 10, this is how he defined it. Mark chapter 10 verse 42 says, so Jesus called them together because they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest and who's going to get to sit beside Jesus on his right. Who's going to get the, they're thinking about all of this authority that they're going to get because they're following Jesus. And he calls the guys together. He said, come here, come here, come here. I want to talk to you. Verse 42. You know that the rulers of this world, this is what they do. They lord it over the people. And the officials, they flaunt their authority over those who are under them. Verse 43. But among you, it's going to be different guys. We're, we're establishing a new form of leadership, Jesus says. Whoever wants to be a leader among you, uh, you got to be a servant. In verse 44, he says, and whoever wants to be first among you, you know, you're talking about, well, I want to be the greatest. I want to be the greatest. If you want to be first, then you, you got to make yourself a slave to everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. To see what Jesus taught was he was saying, look, you need to understand leadership is, it's not about lording authority over others. Leadership is about leveraging your influence for others. And there's a difference and we have to understand that. Yes, there's a responsibility that the man takes as the head of the home that he will be accountable for. But we have to understand men what leadership looks like. And that's why Paul goes directly into his next context, talking about the man and the role for the man in that regards as a leader. And he says, you need to love your wife in the same way Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do for the church? He gave up his life for the church. 
That's why later in this, in this letter, near the end of chapter 5, he would say that marriage is a great mystery. It's a mystery that, that portrays the picture of the gospel. Because Jesus gave up his place and his equality with God. He gave up his glory. And he willingly went to the cross to suffer that penalty for our sins. Why? So that we can be united with the Father. Jesus' main prayer all throughout John 17 that we see where John is recording what Jesus is praying about in the gospel. He prays over and over for unity. Because there's power in unity. And so he's saying this is a picture. Jesus gave it all. So where some people will look and say, well, the Christian marriage and the Christian mindset of marriage is so oppressive. Wives, submit to your husbands because your husband's the head of house. It's not oppressive. Jesus did not come to oppress us. He came and sacrificed his life for us. So it's not, it's not oppressive. It's love. So what, what Paul is saying is he's saying, look, here's what happens. Jesus gave his life for the church. The church in return gives its life for Christ. So here's what marriage is. The husband and the wife give their life for each other. And they sacrifice for one another. That is marriage. And then Paul quotes Genesis and he says that the man will leave his, the man and wife, they leave their father and mother and they cleave to one another. The two become one. What's happening here? There's, there's a friendship that becomes even deeper in its intimacy and in its union. And you join into this spiritual union with one another, helping each other become what Christ is calling you to become. And you're doing this together. You're not doing it as a single now. You're doing it together in a union. And what we have to understand is the heart and soul of our marriage. It's not the wedding. It's not, it's not how beautiful your wedding was or will be. That's not the heart and soul. The heart and soul of your marriage is not who all was in your wedding party. It's not the first dance that you and your spouse did together on the dance floor at the reception. The marriage, your marriage is more than a casual companionship. It's more than a tax write-off. The heart and soul of your marriage is the vows that you make to one another. The promise and the commitment. And I'm afraid, and, and there's nothing wrong with planning your wedding. Please, again, there's no judgment on that. My wife planned and, and thought for years about it. I know women do this. They think forever about the wedding. Some guys maybe too. But there's, not, there's nothing wrong. But sometimes I think we might spend more time thinking about our wedding day than we do thinking about the vows we're committing to a lifetime of marriage. And we need to spend time thinking about what we are committing to and the vows that we're making to one another. Because like we said last week, this is a fusion of souls. And what happens then when we leave and we cleave to one another, then there's a primary relationship that becomes a part of our life. And the primary relationship that becomes a part of our life is the primary relationship with our spouse. Yes, God is first. Always. God is first. First comes love, our first love for God. But the very next relationship as a married couple is your spouse. Listen, our friends are no longer our primary relationship. You have to have friends. Friends are good. Wife, your husband needs friends in his life, needs guys to hang out with. Husbands, your wife needs friends in her life, people that she can hang out with, people she can do things with. But those friendships are not our primary relationships anymore in our life. 
They cannot come before our relationship with our spouse. Listen, our work is not our primary relationship. Our spouse is our primary relationship. We cannot put work first in our life and spend more time with work than we do with our spouse. Our hobbies cannot be our primary relationship. Hobbies are good. We all need hobbies. We all need things that we enjoy, but they cannot come before our spouse. Parents, listen to me. Your children cannot become your primary relationship in your marriage and in your home. Love your kids. Spend time with your kids. Do things with your kids. But your kids come after your spouse. Listen, the kids are meant to go. And all the parents say, we love you, but that's the truth. The kids are meant to go, but the marriage is meant to stay. So listen, couples, that's why so many times you see it happen. When the kids go, the husband and wife are looking at each other like, who are you? Because the children became the primary part of their relationship. And they stopped focusing on each other. We cannot stop focusing on our spouse. But we also need to know that our parents are no longer our primary relationship. That when you get married, you leave. And for some parents, this is hard to let go. Parents, if you've got kids that get married, let them leave and let them cleave. Stop. Right? They've got to go and they've got to be married. And we can't look at our parents and let them be our primary relationship. We cannot consider our parents' thoughts and what they think about situations and things going on in our, in our family, in our marriage, or things we have to face more than we consider our spouse. It's nothing wrong with getting advice and getting counsel from your parents, but you, but you and your spouse have to sit down and say, what's best for us? And remember that what you saw growing up in your home, the way, like, the way your parents showed love to each other may not be the way that works in your home. The traditions you had in your home growing up may not be the traditions you have in your home and in your new family now. When you leave and you cleave, you are leaving what you know and you're creating something new. With someone very special in your life. And so you have made a covenant agreement with one another. A covenant agreement. A covenant is a promise that says, I'm going to love you and I'm going to do everything I can despite my feelings. Because I know this, and we've talked about this throughout the series. Sometimes my feelings don't want to love you. But I've made a covenant, so I'm going to do everything I can on my end to commit to you and to make a covenant and to work on this marriage. See, when, when you invest in your marriage, Jesus t- said this. He said, where, you, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Now, he wasn't talking about marriage, but you can put that principle there. Because where you invest, the more you invest in your marriage, if you invest in it over and over and over again, your heart is in it more. I heard someone say this one time. They said, what starts as romance will end up in despair unless you make a decision to invest. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talked about the investments that we make. He said, or the decisions that we make as investments. He said, good and evil both increase at compound interest. That's why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. We have to know God never intended marriage to be set up under a renewed contract. Do you know these are real things? 
People go into marriages with renewable contracts. They write them out for three, five years, and they say, well, as long as you keep this up, you do this, you, you have these responsibilities, I'll have these responsibilities. As long as we're keeping that, we'll stay together under this contract. We'll get together at the end of those three or five years. We'll review where we are, and maybe we'll renew that contract and stay married to each other. God never intended marriage to be that. All right, let's look at the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap Jesus. This is what they often did with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? And then Jesus, so brilliant. Well, haven't you read the scriptures? They were, the scriptures record... That from the very beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are married or the two are united into one. And since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. And then, then the, the Pharisees come back and say, well, then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, well, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your, to your hard hearts. But it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Jesus' disciples you know, kind of <laughs> they're pulling him to the side. And then Jesus' disciples, they say... If this is the case, man, it's better not to marry. And Jesus responds, we read this verse in verse week, uh, week one. Not everyone can accept this statement. Only those whom God helps. Some are born as eunuchs. Some have been made eunuchs by others. And some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. See, what's happening is the Pharisees are approaching Jesus. They're, trying, they're asking him about divorce. They don't care what Jesus thinks about divorce. Their whole purpose is to trap Jesus. See, they knew that John the Baptist had just been arrested and, and, and killed for speaking out about divorce and remarriage in regards to King Herod. So he had them arrested. He had him arrested and had him killed. And so they're sitting there thinking, maybe if we can get Jesus to stand up against divorce in the same way John the Baptist did, that's going to take care of everything for us. But Jesus is too smart for that. And he comes back at them. Well you, well, you know the scriptures, right? What does the scriptures say about it? They can't say anything then because they do know the scriptures. They have them memorized. And, what, and, and then they say, well, they say, well, why did Moses allow this? And they're pointing back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, it's verses 1 to 4, 1 to 5, somewhere in that regards, talking about when, when something of an indecency takes place, you're allowed to write a letter of divorce. And many scholars are saying that what's trying to take place, what Moses was trying to do was actually to protect a woman from being tossed around back and forth between men and marriages and things like that. But see, Jesus says that Moses was issuing a concession, not a command. And the Pharisees knew this. They were, they, they, they're smart enough to know the difference between a command and a concession. Again, they're getting trapped. In fact, you know, because see what Moses is saying is if there's an indecency, then you can divorce. And that Hebrew word is Ervadaba. And so he's saying that, so in, in their day, there was these two schools of thought. 
It was these two different rabbis who often argued over the law and what, how it should be interpreted. One was a rabbi named Shammai. Another was Halil. And Shammai had this understanding that what Moses meant by indecency was only in regards to some kind of sexual act. And if this was taking place, then you had the right to divorce the, the wife. Halil took it to a little bit more extreme. And he said, if she does anything you don't like, you can divorce her. If she acts in a way at a party that embarrasses you, you can divorce her. There's, there's written documentation that shows where Hillel says that if she consistently burns the bread, ervad daba, divorce her. Jesus is pointing out that marriage is not a contract that you go into where if they're not living up to what you think are the means that they need to live up to, then you just end it. It is a covenant. It is a a pledge that you have made of complete, unconditional sacrifice to one another. That you do everything you can to fight for. And Jesus says, what God's joined together, don't let anything and anyone separate that. See, Jesus understands the covenant is so strong that even the disciples are looking at it and saying, that is a huge commitment. And Jesus is saying, that's the point. It is a huge commitment and we have to treat it like that. But he does give room. And he says, if adultery takes place, cheating takes place. Why? Because like we talked about last week, he says that A unifying of souls is now taking place in another way that has killed the covenant that is with these two souls. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to divorce because adultery takes place. I've seen many marriages where that's take place, go through healing and stay together. But Jesus is saying that you can, that this is a way. And then we we look and we say, was that the only way? Well, that's the only thing that we see Jesus say. But then Paul makes this statement when he's talking about marriage. You can write it down, go back and look at it later. It's 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 14, where he talk, 10 through 15, where he talks about it. And he makes sure to make this point. He says, this is not a command that Jesus has given me. This is a concession. But several times throughout that passage of scripture, he, he makes this statement. He says, I give these as a concession and, and Jesus has given me the wisdom to speak these. And he makes this statement in verse 15. He says that if an unbelieving spouse leaves or is gone, let them leave. That you are not meant to be in bondage. You're meant to be at peace. So what Paul is saying is that if there is something that has killed that covenant through unbelief, through bondage being in that relationship, there is no peace in that relationship. What many scholars are believing that Paul is saying there is when a spouse has killed the covenant by getting to a place where they are unable to be lived with, then there is room. So you can look at this and say, okay, kind of three concepts that I've heard that I kind of go by is adultery, abandonment, abuse. If you're seeing this taking place, then please do not keep yourself in an area It's harmful to you because you're not meant to be in bondage, as Paul would say. It's meant to be a place of peace. But I want us to understand this. When divorce happens, it does not disqualify you. Divorce is not 
something that you cannot be healed from. Divorce is not something that becomes as, uh, as you, maybe you remember the scarlet letter. It's not a big red D that you wear on your chest. And that people look at you and, and they condemn you. The church has been guilty of this in past of someone who's divorced. I asked if I could say this and I was given permission. We have a staff member who has journeyed through divorce in their life. So we know what it looks like. We know what can happen and what can take place. But God can heal. Tim Keller made this statement. He said, King David started his relationship with Bathsheba in the worst of possibilities. David fell in love, had an affair, then had her husband killed. Talk about being knee deep in sin. But when he confessed and repented, God cleansed and blessed his new marriage to Bathsheba. To the point from that marriage came Solomon and from Solomon came Jesus. Unbelievable. What does that mean other than God is saying to all of us, I can redeem the worst situations. And he can. God can redeem and he can heal and he can work in those situations. And he can restore and he can take any new marriage that comes into your life and he can bless it just like he did with David and Bathsheba. But we have to remember and we have to know that God's primary objective is always repentance and reconciliation. That always has to be first and foremost in our hearts and our minds, repentance and reconciliation. And God wants to do everything he can to help us as we journey in that the enemy doesn't. As we close, I want us to see both Paul and Jesus quoted this passage of scripture from Genesis. As we close, I want us to look at these verses together and understand this. Genesis chapter two, verse 24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. This is, this is what Paul and Jesus quoted. And then maybe one of my favorite verses in the Bible, both the man and his wife were naked and yet they felt no shame. That was funny. Verse, uh, chapter three, then we get to chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent, the most cunning of all, comes in to this union. As soon as a union takes place, as soon as they are together, this fusion of souls has happened. They've, lay, they've left and they've cleaved to one another and there's a union in this relationship. Now, the serpent. Why? Because the enemy wants to come on and unwind the two. Because he knows that there is power in unity. There's power in unity in everything across the board. That's why we pray so often for unity in this house and to not let anything come in and divide. But the enemy will do everything he can to bring division because he knows as soon as he can divide, he can conquer. If he can get you to unwind and then come at each other, he's got you where he wants you. But God wants to do everything he can to keep that covenant united as one. To help you through his spirit be able to submit to one another, to love one another, to consider the other over yourself, to give your life for each other, even if sometimes it's difficult. 
God wants to help you. And when that relationship becomes a strong, loving, gracious, forgiving relationship, it becomes a powerful testimony to the world around us. In our marriages, what we're doing is we're learning to love like God loves us because we're learning to love a sinner. We're all sinners redeemed by grace. And so we're learning to love like Christ loves. And we're learning to be more than just a happy married couple. We're learning to be a holy married couple. Set apart to bring God glory in all that we do. Stand with me this morning. place today, I just encourage you do everything you can to keep that unity in place. If your marriage is in a spot where you feel like some of those things we talked about earlier and you need some help, you need some counsel, we want to do what we can to help you get that and to journey through that and in that. Always remember, repentance and reconciliation is primary to God. So do everything you can to work in that relationship. If you're not married, and maybe marriage come is coming in your life, if not, it's okay. But if it does, remember that marriage will be worth fighting for. And it is a deep commitment that you are making one to another. And I just encourage you to spend more time thinking about those vows than you do the plan to get married. There's nothing wrong with that. But think about the vows. Let me pray for your marriages. Father, I thank you today for the marriages that are represented in this room and the marriages that one day will be. And God, I pray for these unions. We know that Jesus prayed over unity so much before he went to the cross because Jesus knew that the enemy's tactic is to divide and to conquer us through our division. And he wants to do it in marriages. We've seen it so many times. Father, I pray for these marriages today and I ask that you would help keep them strong as one. Unite them today. Help them to do everything they can to be guided by your spirit and allow your spirit to work in them to be able to submit to one another. To consider the other over themselves. Father, help us to consider always the importance of commitment we have made to one another. I pray for marriages today that may be in a hurting place. And Father, I pray that you can help them find healing. That where wisdom is needed, I pray that you give them wisdom today. Give them direction. Give them guidance. I pray that you would allow them to have voices of wise counsel to speak into their marriage and speak into their hearts. 
pray for them today and I give them to you. And I pray for those, Father, in this room that have not yet entered that covenant. Maybe it's right around the corner. Maybe they're hopeful for it one day. Whatever the case may be, pray for them, God. And I ask that you would be with them as they journey in their life in this gift that you've given them in their singleness to prepare their hearts and prepare them for the covenant and the commitment of marriage and the gift of marriage. If that's what you've called them to. Help them to understand the greatness of that commitment. And God, we thank you for it. We thank you for this day. And I do ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us in all that we do. God us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. We pray you have a great week. Go be Catalyst for Transformation. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccanbin.com. Go to our contact page. You'll find the link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.